Well, this afternoon, we're going to be continuing in our walk through the book of Hebrews, uh, continuing here in chapter 12 with part four of growing in the greater than. Uh, let's hear from Hebrews chapter 12 as we continue in this series. We'll go ahead and read uh, through verse 17. <clears throat> therefore, since we are surra- therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject <clears throat> be subject to the fathers of spirit, father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our own good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable, peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of Christ, God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this, your holy word, your voice to us. Help us that we might receive it as such, as your words, as your voice. And may we believe it and be molded and formed by it. Would you take your word and plant it deep within each of us and with us as a body? And would you guide us into truth? Do the work in each of us that needs to be done. Strengthen and increase our faith, and would you rest upon this preacher, chain him to the text of your word, that he might freely declare your truth. Do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in this section of the, of the book of Hebrews, what we might call the home stretch, and as we started this section, even though it means home stretch, doesn't mean we're just a few weeks away from finishing. It'll be a little while before we get to the end of the book of Hebrews. 
But we've seen that in this section, he's he's now applying the truths that we have learned about Jesus being the greater than, being the greatest revelation, greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than priesthood, and the greatest sacrifices, and how we must hold on to this one who is the greater than by faith. That is what we need when we need perseverance. We need faith. And now we've been looking at this idea of growing in the greater than. We see that there's this race that is set before us and we're called to run that race looking to Jesus who is the beginner and finisher of our faith, who is the author and finisher, who is the beginning and end of our faith and of the faith. And so we look to him who on account of the joy that was set before him, because he had this joy set before him, he endured the agonies, he endured the sufferings. And so he says, and so should you. And so you have every reason to seek to grow and to respond well to God's disciplining work, remembering uh, that his discipline is fatherly and that his discipline discipline is uh, affirms our faith and that his discipline also bears great fruit. And then we also saw last time uh, when we looked at um, at verses the last section where at last section he says there uh, verses 12 and 13 therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed that this picture of having drooping hands and weak knees as we as we looked at one of my favorite words from the 17th century authors i like to read is the idea of drooping such as the covenant of grace being a sweet cordial for a drooping soul that's the title of a sermon there was about three other sentences after that as part of the title (laughs) but That was the main idea behind that sermon. And that because of God's disciplining work and that he is for us, and because we have all this laid before us and they're greater than, we have every reason to lift up our our hands that are, are, spiritually speaking, our hands that are exhausted or we're despondent or we're just stuck. And to keep putting one foot in front of the other and to keep seeking to grow. And now here in verse four, verse 14, which is what we're going to look at today, he gives the next exhortation. Verse 14 is, is one exhortation with two different aspects to it. It is, it is to strive. And then verse 15 and following actually is an expansion of that, which we're going to look at next time. Uh, time escapes me after I was developing the sermon and thinking through it. I realized we're just going to have to look at verse 14 today. So... But there's there's two aspects to this. These two exhortations underneath the one head of strive or pursue pursue. It is to pursue that is chase after not simply. Well, if they, if if it comes or want to get around to it, we'll get we'll get to this, but rather pursue it. Two things. Peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Those two things. We're going to look at what those are in terms of their idea. But the first thing that he says is to pursue peace with all man or all humans or all humankind. To pursue peace with all men. What do we think of when we think of peace? We think of lack of conflict, correct? There's a great classical piece 
that uh, has to do with a storm and the name escapes me. I didn't have time to look it up, but there's this storm and you hear the music and just a wild cacophony of sound. And after the storm's over, it's this nice, calm, peaceful music. And that's the idea of a lack of conflict. But not only is in this idea of peace, we're going to see it's not only simply a lack of conflict, but more it has to do with being peaceable. Being peaceable. After all, the idea we don't have any control over the actions of other people. But as far as it depends on us, we are called upon to pursue peace with all men. It is not within our power to make people be peaceable with us, but it is within our power to be peaceable with all men. And think of this, and this is true. It's not just true now. It's always been true because we're still humans as Christians. We as Christians are quite often looking to, as they would say in Ireland, peck a fight. Oftentimes looking for a fight, whether it would be theological or, God forbid, sometimes even physical. But we sometimes relish the conflict. We relish the argument. We relish the qual- the the quarrel sometimes. As an example of that, back in the 80s and 70s, 80s and 90s, there was a very large denomination that was heading in a beginning to go off the cliff of theological liberalism. And a group of men came up with a strategy to rescue the denomination. And they, and they successfully did it, and it was called uh, the conservative resurgence in that denomination. Well, after that battle was won, these group of probably 30 people who engineered, engineered it then still needed, seemed to need to have a fight. And so you know what they did? They took those cannons and they turned them towards each other. They took those cannons and began turn and turned them towards each other. And how, but that's not just them. We often do that. We often do that. <clears throat> At the opposite end of pursuing peace with all men is a quarrelsome posture. Living and living for the fight and the argument. But listen to Second Timothy chapter two, verses twenty four through twenty six. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading, them, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice what it says here of the Lord's servant. The first thing, must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone. At the same time, correcting people who are in error, there is part of correction, with gentleness. With gentleness. With the goal of not winning a fight, but with the goal of the opponent coming to faith in Jesus Christ. With the goal of coming to repentance. Not with the goal of saying, I won the argument. Husbands and wife oftentimes might get into a, get into get into an argument, and rather than seeking to resolve the argument, both sides up the ante, saying, "I need to win this argument," rather than seeking 
resolution. And here he's speaking of the Lord's servant. Now, some might say, well, I'm not a pastor or elder, so uh, that doesn't apply to me because he's writing to Timothy here as a pastor. But we look at the very last words of Second Timothy, and here's where being a, you know, a Texan is helpful. Second um, Timothy 4.22, it says, the Lord be with your spirit. And then he says, grace be with y'all. So he's addressing, he's addressing the whole body there. So when he says it's the Lord's servant, it's intended for all the believers in the hearing. He's applying it to the pastors, but as a model of what it should be for everyone else to follow suit. So it's not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. That is not looking for a fight, a posture of kindness, even in correcting, patiently enduring evil. And when a correcting opponents, doing it with gentleness, with the desire that they find repentance and not destruction. Prince Frederick, the wise. When uh, it was demanded that uh, uh, that Rome through the <clears throat> Rome was demanding that he hand over Martin Luther to be put on trial and to most likely to be executed. Uh, he said, I cannot hand him over. And his advisor said, well, what do we do? His first answer was say, well, do nothing and hope that inertia just lets it go away. He said, the other option is to say no, but say no in such a kind way that they have no choice but to simply, uh, but, but, to, <clears throat> but to agree to your terms. We also turn our attention to Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Romans chapter 12, and we have a number of exhortations, which we actually are going to be looking at the whole section a little bit later in the message. But in Romans 12, 18, here he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Again, we have no control of actions over of others, but he says, as far as it depends on you. There's no place in Christian life, whether it would be in the life of the church, especially on things that are very trivial, or even in broader society, for us to say, well, if you won't see things my way, well, you can just get out of my town. That's not the posture a Christian takes. We have to learn how to live with those who don't see things our way while not compromising our faith and our commitments. The posture here, don't, be, don't seek to be in constant conflict. A few weeks ago, we looked at uh, we were looking at Psalm at Psalm 37. We talked about uh, various different voices out there that pedal. That's what they do. They pedal fear and outrage and stir the pot conflict. We named some of them. Just suggested that if that's something you find yourself drawn to, maybe turn them off. You know, the influencers, the talking heads on the cable news networks, all the various different folks who they stir stuff to keep your loyalty and stir outrage and anger. 
doesn't mean we have to compromise truth. It means that we live and carry on with life, accepting the fact that people don't see things our way and engaging gently and patiently as is appropriate. In Romans 12, he also says, if your enemy is hungry, make, sh- make sure that you destroy him. No, that's not what it says. It says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do we wish to be those who have a reputation of leaving a wake of destruction, broken relationship, and burnt bridges in our wake? No, we do not. Another way to put it is this way. And one of my heroes of the Christian faith was kind of this way, and I have to learn not to be that way, is to be like a bull in a china shop. You know, the picture of a bull goes into a china shop with a put a bull in a china shop with all the delicate stuff. What is that bull? What's going to happen to all that china? It's all going to get destroyed. And one of my heroes of the faith um, had a tendency to be that way. Um, I talked about him earlier a little while ago. We also must remember that the ends do not justify the means. Any means as Christians that we use must meet the godly requirements of God's law that he has laid out for us. We don't get to be utilitarian or consequentialists. That, well, it resulted in good, so what we did was okay. Mm -mm, That's not how it works. And oftentimes, we might feel the need to stick our noses where it has no business. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Did you hear what he said here too? live quietly and mind your own business? To aspire to live quietly and mind our own business while working with our hands. Too many of us as Christians might pride ourselves on meddling in others' others' affairs. There's a word that Paul uses about the, uh, of such people. It's called busybodies. It's called busybodies. In fact, there's a whole, there's a whole realm of what has now become a vocation of being busybodies that's risen up. It's called the influencer. Meddling busybodies. Rather than seeking to make a living being influencers, we should work with our own hands. It's especially true for things on which Christians have liberty. We don't like the fact that our brother or sister, and here's an example, might step on us, either wears or doesn't wear a mask. Let's mind our own business. Or bothered by the fact that our brother or sister might shop at a certain store that we think it's unconscionable to shop. Let's mind our own business. Pursue peace with all men. <clears throat> I 
And there's, when he says all men, I wanted to speak specifically of two groups of all people. First of all, as believers. I would like to say that this one is obvious, but it's not always obvious. That we must seek to pursue peace with all men, especially believers. Here, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Hear what he said, do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is not just pursuing peace, but that is part of it. Doing good to everyone, especially the household of faith. We must remember this, you and I, brothers and sisters, and you and I with all brothers and sisters throughout the world have something that surpasses any other bond. We have a bond with each other. It surpasses family bonds. It surpasses ethnic bonds. I, we ha- I have more in common with the brother or sister who lives out in the middle of the nowhere, out of the middle of nowhere in the Sahara Desert, who has, whose probably cultural, cultural outlook is quite different from mine. I have more in common with that person than I do with the person who walks like me, talks like me, and acts like me, but is not a believer. I have a bond with that person. And so it is with each other. We have an obligation to pursue peace with one another as it depends upon us. Take note of what he says in the next verse, which we'll talk about next time. The ESV here translates it as a separate command. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It should read something. I I understand why they do that. But it... uh, Behind that is the understanding of this striving for, uh, sorry, seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Do you hear the difference there? One's a command. The other is expanding on the previous idea. One of the greatest causes of strife, one of the greatest causes of conflict is bitterness. There's a proverbial story of a, told of a, a man who, uh, had a falling out with his friend and they stopped talking to each other. And 30 years later, they still hadn't talked to each other. And a new friend came up to him and said, I heard you used to be friends with this man. He said, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm no longer friend with him. So, well, whatever did he do? Whatever happened? He said, well, I don't remember what he did, but it was bad. We must ensure that we keep short accounts and quick resol- and be quick to resolve any conflicts with each other. Or to simply forgive. To simply forgive. There are things which may cross our path. And a husband and a wife learn this, that there are some things like, eh, I'm just going to let that go. It's not that big of an offense. It doesn't, it's more of an annoyance thing. So we're not going to deal with it. There's other things that are real true and need to be resolved. But in all things, we must resolve and forgive. Whenever I do weddings now, I have actually added an element to the traditional vows, which is and to forgive. And to forgive. Remember, we've been forgiven. How much more should we so do? How much more should we so do? 
If we've been made at peace with God, with all of his people, we have every reason to pursue peace and be peaceable with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I can dis, I can, you and I can disagree with each other about, about whether, about whether infralapsarianism or superlapsarianism is the correct way to understand God's decrees. But we can, but we can live at peace with one another. You and I can disagree about whether or not Someone should wear purple socks with white polka dots. But we can live at peace with one another. Remember, we have more in common with each other than we have with unbelievers who, although according to the flesh, might be more like us. I mentioned Romans 12 earlier. Let's hear Romans 12, 9 um, and following. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All of those are logical outflow of why our Christians should live in a certain way and have this perspective because of the great redemption that we have. Because you and I don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to holding on to things and being bitter or seeking to uh, run, seeking to live a life of just being a quarreler. There's also at peace with all men would include unbelievers. He makes the application specifically to bitterness, most likely with each other. Romans 12, I mean, here in Hebrews 12. That's a specific application to a broader idea. But here we have also think of this unbelievers. I mentioned earlier Galatians 6.10. Good to everyone, especially the household of faith. But that's not exclusive, excluding those not of the household of faith. Yeah, it would include enemies. It is inclusive of everyone, but especially the household of faith. But that does not mean, but we can go ahead and be jerks and quarrelsome with unbelievers. That's not what it says. As I mentioned earlier, we often have difficulty living peaceably with those who don't see things our way, unbelievers. A book I read recently analyzing that on how Christians should approach these things said we have several different options. We can A, isolate ourselves into our own little enclaves. B, we can demand that they leave. Isolating ourselves into our own little enclaves is like uh, a farmer who takes a bag of seed, goes into the middle of the field, dumps out the seed, and then walks away. 
That's not how our farmer plants his seed. Or, as we mentioned, demand that they leave. We don't have a leg to stand on in that regard. Or, third option, we can find a way to live peaceably acknowledging common ground that we have and continuing to be a witness of goodness of God and Christ to them. Consider what Jeremiah said to those Israelites who are about to head into exile in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I... where. Where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So here, notice, he doesn't tell them, just pretend that the city of the city doesn't exist, but rather live in it. Be well, be known in it. Take up a vocation, eat the produce and seek the welfare of that city. Praying for it. Notice this. He also asserts our good is bound up in the good of our neighbor. We do not live in vacuums where the only things impacting us is the things we do. Rather, our decisions impact others and others' decisions impact us. Listen to this example from an early Christian apologist, uh, Diognetus, in his letter to Caesar of how he describes Christians. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct. Dwell, uh, but they dwell in their own country simply as sojourners. It says they dress, eat, talk like the locals. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. They marry and raise families like everyone else, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They love all and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. And then at the end of the letter, he says, no one explains why they, no one can explain why they hate Christians so much. But notice, Christians, he said, are some of the most peaceable people you're going to meet. It was a, a, a world leader in uh, the Middle East, who's no longer uh, a leader of a country in the Middle East, who's no longer a leader. He's since died. Um, He was a Muslim. He preferred Christians to be his closest advisors. Simply because he he believed he could trust them and that they were peaceable. Peaceable. 
We must wish to be at peace with them in Christ. That is, the ultimate expression of peace is that of being, of being at peace with one another, being mutually at peace with God. Our goal for unbelievers is that they might join the family of God, even those who have brought us great harm. It should be our desire that they come into faith in Christ and join us in the blessings of eternal life and union with Christ to seek their salvation, seeking, seeking that even those seeking our harm might find peace with God. Keep in mind, he says in a moment, watching that no one misses the grace of God, watching that no one misses the grace of God. Being at peace with God in Christ has set the pattern for us. Any basis for enmity that anyone has, that if we have any, if anyone has any basis for enmity against us, it's God. It's God. We read Matthew eighteen twenty one to thirty four, and we read the story of a man who, who owed a debt he would never ever be able to repay, probably the equivalent of around a billion dollars. And he went before his debtor, and he said. I can't pay this. Please don't. Please don't have me sold. Please don't have me thrown. He pled for mercy. Pay, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And so you'd think he'd say, this is so wonderful. So there was someone who owed him the equivalent of about a hundred bucks. And he said, pay me the money you owe. And he said, I can't pay. Give me time. And he said, no, I will throw you in jail. And so he did. The master heard about it. The master said, yeah, you owe me the money. You're going to jail. That's a summary. Matthew 18, 21 to 34. We have no basis for holding on to offenses. We have no basis for regarding ourselves as the superior. Rather, we should view ourselves as those who exist not for the good of me, myself, and I but for the good of our brothers and sisters and for the good of our proverbial neighbor for the glory of God. We have no legitimate claim to self-interest and being self-absorbed because Christ laid his life down for us. The next command, he also says to pursue something else. He says, pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a few controversies with regard to the, regards to this. Some read this as saying that there's a certain level of practical holiness a believer needs to reach in order to behold God. And that level is rarely quantified, but quite conveniently, it's usually just below the level that that person has achieved. There's some who argue this is sinless perfection. That without sinless perfection, you will not see the Lord. And there's some who would say that this refers to a supposed final judgment of works by which a believer will receive final justification or final, final salvation based upon the, their good works. I would argue that all three of these, while attempting to kind of scare people and trying to be holy, and try to uphold the holiness of God, actually undermine the holiness of God. They impugn the holiness of God, for they assume that God will accept a holiness less than perfect holiness. 
that impugns God's holiness. So what is it saying? First of all, this is not just some generic holiness of, yeah, I'm more holy than I was yesterday, I guess. No, it doesn't just simply say pursue holiness either. It says pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What is the holiness without which no one will see the Lord? It's not a general sense of holiness where one isn't too bad or their righteous deeds outweigh their wicked deeds. This holiness is perfect holiness without any sort of stain. That is ours in Christ Jesus already. We will never be more holy than we are justified. We'll never be more righteous than we are justified. He simply is saying this, that holiness without which no one will see the Lord, go after that. That's all he's saying. Go after that holiness, which means you're never done in this life. You're never done in this life when it comes to that. As we read earlier from first Peter earlier in the service, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This pursuit never ends as long as we're alive. It is to pursue the holiness, which is already ours in Christ Jesus. It's conformity to God's law, the Ten Commandments, living a life of thanksgiving. The Ten Commandments are filled with prohibitions, which are do not do. But built into that as well are obligations. For, for instance, when we look at the Sixth Commandment, it says, you shall not murder. We look at, we look at Noah, I mean, sorry, Genesis 9, verse 6. It says, the one who sheds blood, uh, his blood shall be shed, for man was created in God's image. What, is the, what makes murder murder? It's attacking, destroying the image of God. And in the, each of the Ten Commandments, everything that leads up to that commandment is forbidden. Everything that leads up to murder is forbidden. Furthermore, everything that promote thing that which promotes and affirms life in the image of God is required. So for instance, and we talked about this in our sermon in the sixth commandment, simply taking a life, taking a life unjustly is murder. But the one who uses his words for the purpose of dehumanizing somebody, treating them less as human, is murderous. One who sees someone who is in life and death need and passes the opportunity to give aid when they have the ability to give aid is murderous. That's the obligation part. I would highly recommend that you look up on the interwebs something like the Westminster Shorter or Larger Catechism and read through the section on the Ten Commandments and you get a picture of holiness. The section on the Sixth Commandment takes up about three pages in the Larger Catechism. So, remember the law. There's the first use, which is the mirror that shows us how sinful we are and how holy God is. There's the second use, which 
by which God, God ensures that we don't destroy each other and that he's written the law of God on our hearts, on our consciences. And we know inherently what's right and wrong. We don't, obviously don't do it. But if you notice, human societies, humans, humans have not brought ourselves to extinction. That's because God has written his law on our, on our consciences. And then there's, then there's the third use, which is this. You're alive. I've given you life, so do this as a matter of thankfulness. Yet at the same time, that brings us back to Christ because we see how far we fall short. This pursuit comes with being a Christian. God justifies no one whom he also doesn't sanctify. But that outworking of our sanctification is a confirmation of God's saving grace and not the judge of our eternal state. That is, this text is not saying that attainment to a certain level of holiness is a prerequisite for eternal life. Rather, the outworking of our sanctification comes along with having eternal life. Consider Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does he say? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for it, work it out. Continue pursuing holiness. But why? Why? Because God's at work in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Because God's at work. We have every reason to pursue This is something that, as we've learned, is rooted in union with Christ by faith. The call to pursue holiness is the call to rest in Christ. The call to pursue holiness is the call to return to resting in Christ when we see how far far we still fall short. And this is something that also requires the body of believers. Notice in the following verses, watch that no one, watching that no one, That's not just an individualistic, private pursuit of holiness. But there's a community aspect. We must have one another. We must engage in and hear with one another the preaching of the word, the prayers of the saints, the fellowship, our fellowship and the sacraments in that God ministers his grace to us. And grows us. There is no such thing as the Lone Ranger Christian. We need the accountability of one another. Now, next time, we're going to see some expansion of these ideas to, to some of the specific things being addressed. We mentioned earlier, watching that to be sure that no one falls short of the grace of God, watching uh, so that no root of bitterness takes root and grows, and watching that no one is caught up in sexual sin or is godless. Those are two separate things there. And so, but again, each in that, notice the one another aspect. And so, brothers and sisters... God is always good to us. And so we have every reason to strive or to pursue peace with all men. And we have every reason, every reason to pursue holiness, pursue the holiness, to chase after the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That holiness, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father... We thank you that you are gracious to us in spite of our shortcomings and our failures and our faults. 
And we pray, our Father, that you would continue to grow us in the likeness of Christ. May we not feel that we have the right to hold on to things, but to let them go. Help us to pursue holiness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.